Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. A great pair of Western boots will elevate a casual look or add a refined flair that will draw both eyes and compliments. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. We also offer custom branding and leather stamping if you want to personalize your boots or fine leather goods. As spring makes its way into summer, stay cool in a short-sleeve, moisture-wicking pearl snap or make your own shade with one of their classic straw hats, new in both men's and women's styles. And if you're planning to hit the road, Tecovis's ever-growing lineup of rugged and full-grain leather bags will get you where you're headed in style and are built to last decades. Visit Tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S.com. And don't go gently, y'all. In every pair of Tecovis boots, you can expect handmade quality, first wear comfort, and timeless Western style. Tecovis boots are always made from premium bovine and exotic leathers, and with occasional resoling, they will last a lifetime. The best way to shop for boots is at your local Tecovis store, where you'll be greeted by the smell of fresh leather and a friendly smile. Come on in, grab a cold one, get fitted by a pro, and shop the latest styles. Visit tecovis.com. That's T-E-C-O-V-A-S dot com. And don't go gently, y'all. From the nation's capital, this is the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast with your host, Rob Snow White. downloading this week's podcast series one episode 28 frequently asked questions i get a lot of the same questions asked repeatedly Um, today i had three emails with the same question of which license do i need what do i need to bring and what do i need to wear Um, i have a list of frequently asked questions on my website and since i get the same questions um, you know repeatedly every day I figure I'm going to compile them into a list and answer them now. If you're a prospective client, maybe this will answer some questions for you. If you want to know a little bit more about me, maybe this will answer some of those questions and um, we'll see where this goes. So I've compiled a list of about 50 something questions from pretty simple to utterly bizarre and the weirdest one I've saved for last. So you're going to have to stay tuned for that one. So let's dive right in. These are in no particular order except um, alphabetical. So you might get uh, you know part of one question here and then maybe another part of that question later on if they're similar. I didn't really go through and, and organize these. I just kind of compiled a bolded list and then just alphabetized them. So frequently asked questions. Number one, are the snakeheads eating everything in the Potomac River? No, the snakeheads are not eating everything in the Potomac River. They have develop their own sort of niche. They seem to favor striped or banded killifish and will pretty much eat most of the things you throw at them, but you'll go down to the Potomac and see just as many bait fish and juvenile sunfishes and striped bass and shads um, as you would have maybe 15 years ago before the snakeheads were introduced. So most people ask me, well, the snakeheads, they're just eating everything. Um, that's because they they read one article that was poorly researched just for a, a quick little blurb on a website or a newscast to get attention. And the facts are that they've developed their own niche. They're really not destroying everything. And I'll answer more snakehead questions later on. But, uh, you know, everyone's like, oh, well, they're an invasive species. Well, invasive is 
mostly what you're going to describe it as. I just got back from salmon fishing in the Great Lakes. Those fish were dumped in there, but they were for a recreational and economic reason, not the way the snakeheads were dumped in here. So you can dump salmon in a river, and they're going to eat up all the bait fish and crayfish, and then move out to the Great Lakes and eat bait fish out there. That's doing the same thing the snakehead is doing in the Potomac River, apparently. But if you're doing one for um, economic reasons to bring in fishermen and anglers, well, then it's not considered an invasive species. It's a sport fish. I think one day the snakeheads are going to be seen as uh, a delicacy and a great sport fishery, and, and the whole term invasive is just going to be completely, um, you know, taken out of the equation. We'll save invasive for things like kudzu, dandelions, starlings, things that are, are definitely um, forcing other organisms out of the natural environment. But snakeheads are here to stay. They found their own little cubby hole in the river, and they're staying there. Biggest fish I've ever caught. You have to say, uh, the biggest thing I've ever caught was a tarpon in Florida. I didn't land it. So if you want to know the biggest fish I've ever landed, it would either have to be a king salmon or my snakehead. Snakehead was measured at 34 inches long. I never measured the king salmon. Um, they're supposed to weigh in, you know, maybe 20 pounds. If my daughter's 12 pounds, there's no way that king salmon was anywhere in the 15 to 20 pound range. It was, it was pretty big. Um, especially one I caught last week. The biggest fish I've ever caught around here would have to be the gar in about a four-foot range. However, I didn't land them and get photographed. Usually, if I can photograph it, to me, that counts as having landed it. Can I bring booze with me on a trip? Absolutely not. Everybody has different tolerances to alcohol. I don't want somebody getting hurt and then me getting sued. A lot of the places we're fishing are national parks. You're not allowed to have alcoholic beverages in national parks. Um, and my insurance company as well does not want you to drink alcohol. Somebody could have one drink and be completely schnockered and get hurt, fall overboard, and then it's my fault or break a rod or um, drop a glass bottle and get cut. So no booze on fly fishing trips. Can I keep the fish? Uh, the only fish I'm going to let you keep are the northern snakeheads. Since in D.C. it's the law to kill them, remove them from the water. In Virginia, it's to your jurisdiction. Uh, it's, it's your decision if you want to pull them out, cut their heads off, keep them, eat them, give them to somebody at the river. But for me, it's all catch and release. So we're going to throw back everything as least harmed as possible. But the snakeheads, due to legal reasons, we are going to... Throw, uh, throw them on land, cut the heads off, or donate them to somebody else. Do I need a fishing license? If so, which license do I need? This is a daily email question for me. Uh, when I send clients maps and attachments, I always have license information, but I think people neglect that. So let's talk about fishing licenses. Yes, you need a fishing license, whether we're fishing in Maryland, D.C., or Virginia. If we are fishing Virginia... In the Potomac, and we enter the water from Little Falls above, you need a Virginia or Maryland license. Maryland owns the Potomac River from their shoreline to the low water mark. So basically, as soon as you enter the Potomac River from Virginia, you are in Maryland. So you can use either license. It's reciprocal. Anywhere between Little Falls and the Wilson Bridge on the D.C. or Virginia shorelines, you need a D.C. license. D.C owns the Potomac River, both shorelines, to the high water mark. So when you're standing at low tide on the Virginia shoreline, you are in D.C. The National Park Service does not care about a Virginia license, only a D.C. license. And the fact that a D.C. license is $7 in-state and $13 out-of-state, I would highly suggest that you get a D.C. license for fishing places like Chain Bridge, the Tidal Basin, and Gravelly Point. Below the Wilson Bridge, uh, you can't really enter the river, so I would suggest that you use a Virginia freshwater license from the Virginia shoreline. I do not guide leaving from the Maryland shoreline. I do not guide leaving from the D.C. side of the Potomac River. That is all national park land. I do not possess the permits to cross the Sino Canal, and the National Park Service will no longer let me take clients to the Tidal Basin. So um, if you're on the Virginia shoreline with me and 
you're fishing in the Potomac, you need a DC license. Anywhere in Northern Virginia that we are fishing requires a freshwater Virginia license. That could be Reston, Burke, um, Centerville, Great Falls area. Any of the, the creeks running into the Potomac, any of the lakes or ponds all require a Virginia freshwater license. It is less expensive to have one and get busted than to not have one and get busted because they will take all of my fishing equipment and they will fine us. Do I need a sink tip? Well, the only time we're going to use sink tip lines are during the shad run and during the striper run. So if we're fishing at chain bridge between March, April, and May, yes, you need a sink tip. If we are fishing from September, October, November on the Potomac, yes, you need a sink tip. The rest of the year, I would suggest you do not use a sink tip or a sinking full line. I would suggest you use a floating weight forward line. Do I need bug spray? Will there be mosquitoes on the lake? I get this question a lot. I don't suggest people wear bug spray. I suggest they just wear long sleeves and cover up. Um, if your clothes are thick enough, the female mosquitoes cannot poke through them and suck your blood and transmit diseases. Mosquitoes are vectors for things such as uh, malaria, yellow fever, um, West Nile virus, and they also just happen to itch. So if you want to prevent all those, Sure, cover your skin up with chemicals. I will have Dermatone bug repellent for you if you need some. Most of the insects are only going to be out in the early morning and late evenings in low wind conditions. Mosquitoes cannot really move around when it's windy, and they're not going to be where mammals are not located. That will be out in the middle of the lake. If we're in the middle of the lake, there's nothing for a mosquito to latch onto. The birds are very scarce, and there are no mammals. So you are not going to find something that feeds on mammalian or avian blood out in the middle of the lake. Throw in the fact that there's wind out there, and I would suggest leave the bug repellent at home if we're fishing out on the lake. Do I need extra spools for line? If you want to bring a sink tip and a floating line, go for it. I would suggest you just bring a floating line. If we really need to get you down in a pinch, we'll put a piece of split shot on and get your line down there. But for the most part, you do not need extra spools for line. I would suggest not purchasing a floating line and spool and a sinking line and spool before you really know what you're getting into. You don't want to spend the extra couple hundred of dollars and realize I'm really not going to be using a full sinking line anywhere in the mid-Atlantic. Do I need to bring flies? If you have flies, absolutely bring them. Uh, I've got my own that I'm going to provide. You know, I've got a couple favorites. If you listen to the podcasts or you read my blog, you know what I use. We're probably going to use my selected flies that I know are proven in these locations that I've tied catering to the specific species at that location at that time of year under those circumstances. Flies are included in the cost of you fishing, so I will be bringing flies and we will use mine. But if you have yours, you're more than likely to try them out, especially if they're ones you tied yourself. I really encourage that. If you've got antique flies, I'd say... um, Keep those somewhere. Don't use them fishing. I had a client bring out flies at his grandfather, and this client was in his 70s. His grandfather's flies that I still have. He gave me a bunch of them. He said he was never going to use them. He wasn't going to put them on display. So he gave me a bunch of hand-carved balsa wood flies and hand-tied stuff that are from probably the turn of the last century. So those are sort of things you don't want to you know, bash up along rocks and, and lose in trees. So I'd say leave those at home. Do I need to wear a life jacket? Yes, if you're on my boat, you need to wear a life jacket. You can take it off for photo ops, but due to the simple fact that life jackets save lives, we're going to wear them. And my insurance company also requires me to have life jackets on you. It is a very simple way to prevent uh, loss of life. And we get, you know, almost a dozen plus drownings a year on the Potomac. Those are usually because someone takes off their life jacket or falls in and does not have one. So it's a simple way to protect yourself. I would suggest if you are going in the boat to not wear a cotton shirt because these life jackets do not breathe and you are going to lose a lot of fluids via sweating. Some of them are made out of neoprene and you are going to sweat a lot of water out. If you're wearing cotton, it's just going to stick to you. You're not going to evaporate. You're not going to cool off. You want to wear a synthetic material that's going to evaporate and not hold that sweat and just keep you muggy and cold. Do I need waders? Um... 
Only place we're going to use waders is Gravelly Point if we're going to wade in or if you want to wade in at four mile run for carp in the winter. Waders, if you listen to my last podcast, it's not on iTunes. I'm still trying to figure that out. It's all about waders. Waders are a big investment, and if you can save the wear and tear in them by not having to wear them that often, please don't have to don't wear waders if you if you can avoid it. So if we're fishing from Gravelly Point, um, if it's one or two of you, I'm gonna loan you a pair of waders and we will go in and fish. If you have your own, bring them. Um, but I'm not going to schedule you at a location where waders are a requirement. So if you don't have them and I don't have them for you and you think you can't fish, we're not gonna have to deal with that. You can fish without waders from every place we go. Most of the time, I would suggest you wearing a pair of Wellingtons, which are knee-high rubber farm boots. You can go and get an inexpensive pair at any military surplus store, Walmart, Dick's, or uh, Marshall's has those like ladybug-looking rain ones for the ladies. Fishing like a local isn't just about catching fish. It's about connecting with the environment and the people who call it home. It's about hearing the stories and traditions that have been passed down for generations and sharing unforgettable moments with the people you meet along the way. Fishing like a local is having an experience that stays with you forever. And with Fishing Booker, you can experience it too, no matter where you are. Discover your next adventure on Fishing Booker. Do I use spin rods or just fly fish? The last time I used a spinning rod was May 4th, 1999. Or I should say before that. That was the day I stopped spin fishing. I caught a striped bass on an 8-weight fly rod and never picked up a spinning rod again. So I do not spin fish. I do not offer spin fishing equipment to my clients. My name is not the fly fishing and spin consultant. It is the fly fishing consultant. So I no longer deal with spin fishing, bait fishing, maggot drowning, whatever the other stuff is. I've been out of the loop with that since 99. Don't remember the terminology. Um, It's just fly fishing. For me, I still have some of those old rods in my parents' garage collecting dust. They're more of just sentimental memories. I don't plan on throwing them out because they're not taking up space. But I don't really ever plan on using them again. Do snakeheads really walk on land? No. That was all a myth. That was due to poor reporting and the media hype when the fish were introduced into the Potomac and the Crofton Pond. The snakeheads on land can wiggle or writhe back and forth and actually locomote that way, but they cannot use their pectoral fins to actually crawl across land from one water source to the other, which was first reported. People always remember the fact that they walk on land and that they're going to eat everything in the river and neglect everything else. So when I meet people on the river that say, what are you fishing for? And I say snakeheads and they're like, oh, that's the fish that walks on land. I'm like, no, man, that's not the fish that walks on land. That was poor reporting. I try to correct them and explain their pectoral fins do not have enough supportive structures to actually allow them to pull themselves across land. So I, it's, that's like a weekly, almost daily topic that comes up somewhere when people ask what we fish for in the Potomac. And I say snakeheads. And the first thing they ask is, hey, man, that's that fish that walks on land, right? And I'm like, no, no, it doesn't. Do I do this year-round? Yes, I'm a fly fishing guide year-round. Fly fishing is my only source of income. Since I quit working as a federal consultant, we can fish year-round. If you listen to previous podcasts, I mentioned warm water discharges at power plants that you can fish and that there are limestone streams that say the same temperature year-round. And there are tailwaters where water comes out from the base of a dam and it's the same temperature as the base of the river or lake that fills that reservoir which then empties into the stream so those are three scenarios where we can fish year round i plan on um, starting the carp season up around thanksgiving and that will carry us through with some stocked trout until saint patrick's day and after saint patrick's day it's going to be shad season This next one seems to get the biggest shock from people whenever I answer it. What do you do with the fish you catch? I photograph them and throw them back. You don't eat the fish you catch? No, I don't eat any fish. Fish to me are a sport and a challenge. 
When I see a fish, all I want to do is catch it, photograph it, and put it back. When I see a fish, I don't see a slab of fish steak on a plate with dill sauce and some capers and a lemon wedge on it. Uh, it maybe it has to do with the fact that we were grown up. I grew up not eating fish. It was something we never were served. Uh, grew up in an ocean and freshwater conservation-minded family. So we never really ate fish. They were always something to photograph or catch with a, a line or just go and observe. But for us, we never ate fish. Maybe that's why I was never exposed to it and I don't eat it. I didn't even learn that I was allergic to shellfish until college when I was given a scallop at the age of 21 and my throat started to close up. And I, I just thought I had something scratchy in my throat. So I kept drinking this white wine at my girlfriend's parents' house. And before I knew what I was having... An allergic reaction with my throat closing up, and I got drunk. So, I don't eat fish. That is the biggest shock people always find out. Well, there's the analogy that A-Rod doesn't eat baseballs. He catches them for a living. That's a stupid one, but it's one that I've heard you know used for baseball players. And if I kept and ate all the fish I caught, then I'd have no fish for my clients to go after. So, there's another reason. Uh, the fish are polluted where I live. All the male bass have ovaries. Do you want to eat a fish with ovaries that's a male or that's full of PCBs and heavy metals and all sorts of other chemicals? No. So that's, uh, I guess, another reason I don't eat fish. Do you ever get bored of doing this? Uh, I could fly fish every day of my life and probably never get bored. Um, do you ever get frustrated doing this? Well, you can be frustrating when you tell a client to do something and they repeatedly don't do it and then they break a rod or they're not catching fish and getting frustrated and, and are blaming you. But that's just part of the job and you got to just take a deep breath and just untie the knots and don't let your sunglasses steam up because it's just fly fishing. And there's a lot worse things I could be doing in life. Um, I could be, you know, cleaning septic tanks or being that high school teacher I was or, uh, a cubicle jockey and a suit and tie every day. So I'm thankful every day that I get to do what I do. Um, and I, I can't let it ever get frustrating. Even at, you know, if someone breaks five rods in a trip or they're late and I don't know, there's a lot worse things that could be going on in my life. So I'm thankful for what I do as a living. And, um, I can honestly fly fish 24 hours a day. That's why I'm scared. If I ever go to the places with like the midnight sun, because I think I'm going to fish for like 14 hours, 15 hours straight. And it's going to look like it's dusk the whole time. So I'm looking forward to that. Maybe I'm older now. I can't do that. But when I was like 20, 22, 23 years old, I would fish sun up to sun down and not take a break. So we'll see how things go as I get older. Do you guide anywhere else like Montana or Alaska? Um, I only guide in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C., I have worked in Colorado, Florida, and West Virginia. The only place I was really a guide would be West Virginia. I did casting instructions and lessons in Colorado, and I was a shirt folder and floor mopper when I lived in Florida. Um, most other states require you to have a guide license. There's jurisdictions with crossing state borders, insurance issues. So I only guide in Northern Virginia and Washington, D.C., does your wife fish? She will fish if it's guaranteed she's going to catch something and it's easy. So the two places, three places she'll fish are Lake Audubon in Reston, where we're visiting my parents, our friend's farm pond in the Catskill Mountains, and her friend's private ranch out on the Elk River in Colorado. New York and Colorado are places that the fish never see flies, so they'll eat whatever you throw at them, so... You can catch giant trout on San Juans out in Colorado. You can catch a giant largemouth on mice and foam bugs in New York. And beadhead nymphs, she can absolutely whack the fish out in Reston. She um, tolerates fly fishing. It's not something she's going to go out of her way to do. So when we're out in Colorado, she can ski and I can fish. When I go with her Christmas through New Year's to Ohio this year, I'm going to go steelhead fishing in Cleveland while she's hanging out with her parents in Columbus, but no, she doesn't fly fish. She's got her own waders, her own rods, cowboy hats in case she ever does want to go, but it's not something that she's going to 
seek out. I think she'd rather play tennis or read a book. When I first met her, I would take her trout fishing like every weekend, and she would just sit there and read a book and have a bottle of champagne and just move with me on the stream. Last year in Martha's Vineyard, where I fly fished for five days straight and didn't even see a fish, she sat in a lawn chair with an umbrella and a bottle of champagne, her iPod books, and New York Times, and I think she was happier than she could have ever been. Don't I need to cast back and forth a lot like they do on TV, i.e. river runs through it and commercials for allergy medicine? No, you do not need to wave your stick back and forth. The two reasons people are doing it is A, they're adding distance to their fly line, or B, they are trying to dry a fly made of natural materials. If you keep waving your stick in the air, you're going to A, get exhausted very fast, B, spook all the fish, or C, waste your time. As far as I know, there are no fish worth catching in the air. So if your fly is in the air, you're not catching any fish. People will broadcast, and I'm like, good job, that's it. And they're like, don't I have to swing it back and forth in the air? And I'm like, no, you're backed up against trees. I mean, go ahead and try it. We're going to find out through trial and error why that won't work. But what you see on TV is not what we're going to be doing. Just because someone's waving a fly rod back and forth in the air from 10 to 2 o'clock is not what all fly fishing is. So that's one misconception in the first two minutes of a casting instruction that I have to correct every time. Have you ever guided somebody famous? Um, I've taken out well-known people. I don't know if you call them celebrities, but I've taken out all sorts of people from every background, from people that have um, adult toy parties to local media people, assistant secretaries of Homeland Security, Secretary of the Navy, um, moms, dads, lawyers, people from the military. So it depends on what you want to say, famous or celebrity. I've met a bunch of people um, through working in fly shops, professional athletes, politicians that fly fish. Um, I met uh, a famous band last week that was fishing in New York. And I was fishing with some guys from the Colbert Report, but... I'm not going to name names because that's sort of unprofessional, but, um, you know, you meet people here and there and, um, it's, it's always cool when you meet somebody, you know, famous or well-known. We always knew that Cheney's undisclosed location was the snake river because every time he'd come into our fly shop, you know, three days later, Dick Cheney is an undisclosed location for security reasons. We're like, it's the snake river. He came in here and returned a pair of Henry Fork's boots and got a bunch of flies and was just the biggest curmudgeon you'd ever met. He would sit, he'd walk in and do this to the register with his fingers. He would tap them and wait for you to wait on him. He's not a nice guy. Um, let's see. How did Groupon work out for you? So if you're unfamiliar, I sold 1,353 two-hour guided trips through Groupon. Um, they expire December 31 of this year. It's been great. It's business I never would have had. I got to expose my business to thousands of people who never would have heard about me that are spreading the word. I'm getting photographs of them on my website, so it helps my web. And it introduces people to the lifestyle and sport, if you call it, of fly fishing. There are some drawbacks. Groupon takes 50% of the money, so I only really made 25%. They sold the deal at 50%, and then they take 50% of that. And then they take $800 of credit card fees. But that's money I otherwise wouldn't have gotten. It's very difficult trying to schedule 1,353 people. Some people want to have email conversations and voicemails and conference calls, uh, trying to book people when they don't get back to you, or if I'm out of town and can't get back to them, or people have to cancel for health reasons, or you name it. It's The only drawback for me is the logistics of trying to schedule and fit all of those people in before the time's up, and I'm pretty sure... 500 people are going to call me the last week and give me an excuse as to why they couldn't go, even though they had eight months. Same happened with the first Groupon. People waited an entire year, and they called me the night before and said I'm a run a bad business because I couldn't accommodate them on the last day. And I had already given a six-month extension to everybody. So you kind of have to deal with being your own business and then managing your own business with that many people and the chance that somebody could get a little unruly with you on the phone. But I'm here to please people, so I try to accommodate everybody. And um, 
it's been a learning experience. So um, I could not be doing what I'm doing now without the use of Groupon. Next question. How far do I need to cast 30 feet? 99% of all fish are caught within 30 feet. If you're going out for bonefish, learn to throw 60 or 70. If you're going after... I mean, what else do you need to throw that far for? All of our striped bass and shad can be caught roll casting 30 feet. If we're in the drift boat, 20 feet of casting is all you need. They're really, I mean, it's fun to throw line and shoot line out and have your, you know, hero cast and show off when you're at the pond at the, you know, casting clinics or at a, a spay clave or something. But in reality, 30 feet is all you need to overhand cast and roll cast. All those fish are going to be that close to us. Heck, at the tidal basin, they're under your feet. You don't even need a cast. You just dap your fly rod in the line, the water, and you're going to catch a fish. So you don't really need to cast too far here. Um, it's good to work on casting distance. Just get some Frisbees at the dollar store and put them in a, a yard and, and aim at them. And you can just take a measuring tape and roll it out. And you do want it 10 feet, 20 feet, 30 feet, 40 feet. I used to do that in college. I thought that I'd have to throw all this line for when I was going to go to the Keys. And I sat out in a field and practiced trying to throw as much line as I could. The only bonefish I hooked was maybe 15 feet off the bow of the boat. And the tarpon was like 15 to 20 feet. So, I mean, yeah, they're fish that are far away. But, man, that's a lot of uh, line to be dealing with. That's a lot of just mess and opportunities for tangles. So try and keep it short. How long do flies last? Like I said earlier, I've got flies that are over 100 years old. As long as you don't lose them, they don't get mangled by the fish, the hooks don't rust, the wrappings don't come undone, your flies could last for several years. I can go through my fly box and be like, I tied that in October of 99. Uh, I, could, I tied that in March of 03. That one I tied when I was a substitute high school teacher in 2004 and was showing a movie to some class and the kids were asleep anyway. So as long as you're not destroying them, they're going to last you your whole lifetime. Just make sure you keep them dry, you sharpen them, and that you're not crushing hackle fibers when you put dry flies away. As long as, you know, you're good at those flies, you know, they might last you a day. When I steelhead fishing last week, you know, I tied those flies with the intention that they're going to get lost. I'm not spending an hour tying them. I'm tying, you know, 30 of them in an hour because... I'm cranking them out because I'm going to lose them all that weekend. And sure enough, I did. So, um, yeah, you're going to lose flies, so be prepared. Some of your flies, if they're tied by crappy companies, they're going to come undone a lot quicker than if they're tied by uh, custom tied by somebody you know and trust that is going to put the effort into making those tight wraps and using good materials that's going to last. How long have you been doing this? And then I say fly fishing or guiding, and they're like both been fly fishing since I was about 10 years old. I've been guiding basically as to make it a profit off of guiding since 1999. And as a full-time gig, uh, I've been doing this since June of 2010. How many Groupons did you sell? I already answered that, 1,353. Out of those, how many have you redeemed? Um, I can tell you right now it's... Fewer than 400 people have redeemed. So um, I want everybody to show up. I want photographs of everybody catching fish. I want everybody to learn that there's resources in their backyard, but people move, people forget about them. People are just too busy. It's getting cold now. So who knows? Um, you know, ideally I'd like to have everybody come out. That's why I did it. I want to spread the word about fly fishing and my business. If we're fishing for the Virginia shoreline, do we need a DC license? Yes, I think I answered that earlier. Any water owned by DC, you need a DC license. That includes Chain Bridge down to the Wilson Bridge on the Virginia shoreline. Is that bird a crane? No, that giant blue grayish bird is a great blue heron. They are not related to cranes. They're in a completely different ornithological family. Uh, we get a lot of blue herons here, and I'm always asked if those are cranes and I say no those are great blue herons they're similar in looks and appearance and size but they're a completely different bird it's 100 degrees out why do you wear long sleeves and pants and why is your face covered and you're wearing gloves 
When it's that hot out, the more I can cover my skin from the sun, the less heat I feel. And I've actually gotten used to being out in the sun with gloves and a buff mask, long sleeves and pants. It's the shade, the cool material, the technology that's built into it that allows me to stay cool. If I take off the pants and put on shorts, I'm going to get hot really fast because it's direct skin exposure to the sun, which then is going to make me sweat. And then the sweat's going to evaporate. I'm going to get dehydrated. So I prefer to wear a big cowboy hat and be all covered up and make my own shade when it's hot out. This one, every day. What do I need to bring with me? On my website, you need to bring with you your fishing license, sunglasses or protective eyewear, a shade-providing hat, and shoes or boots that can get muddy, wet, or dirty. I will provide everything else, which I'll get to later. And if you're a Groupon customer please bring your groupon print out with you i need the barcode not the 12 digit number that starts with the pound sign i need the eight digit barcode number what brands of rods do you use i use sage orvis Cortland, reddington and temple fork outfitters i started with Cortland. And then I worked at Orvis for some years. I picked up a Sage Rod at Hudson Trail Outfitters. I picked up a Reddington Rod as a spare rod in New York one year. And my Temba Fork Outfitters is the Deer Creek Switch Rod. And I picked that up last winter. And those are the rods. Those are the brands of rods I use. I prefer to use the Orvis ones because when my clients or I break them, it's a short drive to the Orvis company store. And it's a $30 charge for me rather than shipping them to the company and paying for shipping and the repair fee. So 30 versus 55, it's much easier to use an Orvis rod and have to deal with that. Less uh, repair money. What did you study in school? I was a biology major in school with a focus on macrobiology, which is uh, vertebrates and invertebrates and botany. So plants, animals, fish, bugs, tropical ecology, ecosystems, pollination ecology, critters that you could go out and I studied like parasites and cell biology uh, parasites were cool and fascinating but I was more into going out and catching frogs and toads and snakes and being graded on that so uh, biology the stuff you can see not like the micro stuff which was all you know microscopes and diagrams I actually had the tangible stuff I could go out and grab and play with what do I need to bring with me so oh, that's a duplicate Okay, uh, what do we do if it's raining or thunderstorm? We are going to fish in all weather situations except for flooding and lightning. If it's raining, bring a raincoat. You're going to get wet. The fish are already wet. If there's water landing on the river or lake, the fish are more likely to feed because the predators can't see them as well. And it's cloudy out and they can see better because fish don't have eyelids. They can't blink. They're very sensitive to light. So low light conditions will be better fishing. If it's pouring rain, we're going to be out in it, so be prepared to get wet. If it's thundering, we're going to call it. We will reschedule. I have my smartphone with my topper shut Doppler radar. If you don't have that app, it's the WUSA9 weather app, and I think it has the best radar. You can track the direction and speed of storms, so you can know when that storm forming over Front Royal Virginia is going to be in Reston or the one in Fredericksburg when it's going to be up at Chain Bridge. That way we can plan ahead and get out of there. You don't want to be standing outside waving a graphite rod in the air. Knives, machetes, saws, and shears, multi-tools, shovels, swords, axes, spears, hatchets, and tomahawks. If it cuts, snips, slices, or chops, Midway USA has it. Find great gift ideas in our huge selection of pocket knives and other everyday carry folding knives. Make a statement or create a family legacy with one of our top-of-the-line hunting knives. We've got a great selection of manual and electric sharpeners, too. For just about everything for the outdoors, check out MidwayUSA.com. What does a fly fishing consultant do? Well, it's a play on words. I live in D.C. where everybody consults on politics and defense and education and what else. Um, I just happen to be someone that consults on fly fishing. My dad had an office next to the Beet Sugar Association of America and I think the Garlic Powder Association of America. So they're lobbyists and consultants for everything you can imagine. So I am anybody can be a fishing guide, 
But what I do is I provide knowledge and education to people who want to learn to fly fish or further educate those who already fly fish. So anybody can take you out and guide you. I'm going to teach you the ins and outs, the what's, where's, why's, when's, and how-to's of fly fishing through my knowledge of fly fishing for 24 years now, uh, working in fly shops around the country, reading, hanging out with other guides, bringing all that knowledge together and giving you sort of a short rundown of what you need to know for that situation. What if the river's flooded? If the Potomac River's flooded, we are going to go to another location that will probably be a still water like Lake Audubon in Reston or Burke Lake. Next question, what is a nymph? A nymph is the aquatic version of an insect that is in the larval stage. So it's after the egg and it's before the adult. So mayfly, caddisfly, stonefly. And these are going to be fished subsurface. And we are going to basically throw something that is three quarters of an inch to um, anything that's up to the size of a half a grain of rice at them. Nymphs tend to be three quarters of an inch long, brown, and fuzzy. There's thousands of varieties, but those are the basics of them. And if you want to learn more about nymphs, go to the Entomology and Flies podcast from earlier. Conversely, a dry fly is something that's going to float on top of the water. It's going to be the adult version of anything from a caddisfly, maidfly, stonefly to grasshoppers, ants, and beetles. It's something that is tied with buoyant or hydrophobic, meaning water-fearing materials, and it's going to be above the surface. So then a wet fly is something that's going to be subsurface. It's going to be made out of hydrophilic or water-loving materials. That would be rabbit fur or um, like peacock feathers, things that are going to absorb water and sink. What is the difference between fly fishing and other fishing? That's a podcast in itself. Fly fishing, you are using a mostly weightless object, which is the fly, and you are throwing that to the fish using a longer, thinner rod and a fly line. The fly line is usually PVC or polyvinyl chloride coated nylon that has mass or weight to it, and you bend the rod. The rod then transfers that potential energy to the fly line, which throws the fly line. The fly line throws the leader, which is the clear monofilament that separates the fly line from the fly, and then the fly at the end. Spin fishing or bait fishing, you are throwing weightless monofilament line and a weighted object at the end, be it a worm or a crankbait or a piece of power bait or spinner, whatever. If I were to cut off the fly, I can still throw the line because I'm throwing the weighted line. The fly, for the majority, has nothing to do with the physics of casting. If I were to cut off a crankbait and try and throw monofilament line, nothing's going to happen. Additionally, to fight a fish on spinning rod, you reel it in. The majority of our fish, at least around here, are going to be pulled in by hand. And if I were to cast spinning rods, the line would come off the reel as you cast. Fly line does not come off the reel without you manually pulling on it with either your left or right hand. Um, other things, we tend to use smaller hooks. Um, yeah, I don't really want to get into it because it's going to sound like I'm a fly fishing snob and spin fishing is like down dirty. Um, I, maybe I'll do it, I'll podcast about that in the future, but it has to do with the anatomy and physics of how we're casting to the fish. We're throwing a more natural or realistic representation of the food source rather than some monstrosity made out of, um, balsa wood plastic or whatever, whatever a rubber worms made out of with nine hooks and treble hooks on them. We're using single fly, natural looking imitation. What is your favorite type of water to fish? I love, love, love a tailwater that has pocket water. So water coming out of the base of a dam that drops in elevation and each drop in elevation presents a new set of pools that can be fished differently based on the water coming in and out of them. Favorite places would be 11 Mile Canyon in Colorado and the Savage River and Big Hunting Creek in Maryland, just to name a few. Um, 
My second favorite would have to be flats fishing, such as Florida Keys or Hawaii or the two places I've really fished the flats where you're wade fishing needs to thigh deep water and you're just exposed to all these different organisms around you. It could be crabs, lobsters, eels, sharks, rays, skates, cuttlefish, all the birds in the air, the coral, the different types of grasses. And you're, you're hunting in turquoise clear water. And it's, it's an absolutely beautiful spot where, you know, the surroundings more than make up for the fishing. So if I had my choice, I'd first want to fish pocket water in a tailwater. And I'd want to fish my bacon streamer on a 10 foot six weight, weight forward floating line. And if I was out in the flats, it'd be a, 10 to 12 weight rod, I'm sorry, 10 to 12 foot rod, eight weight, weight forward floating line, large arbor reel. What's next? What kind of boat is that? Is that a dory? My boat is a Western drift boat. It is 17 feet by about five feet wide. It is made of aluminum with a modified V hull. It weighs 360 pounds. And is known as a drift boat. It is based on an Oregon design. The company is Aluma Weld, and it's a boat made for zero to class five rapids. And it is propelled by either my body using oars or my 9.9 liter outboard motor, which I've yet to put on my boat and learn how to use. I pretty much have the only drift boat of that style around here in the dc metro area there are a couple of people that have the inflatable western kinds but mine is a little more adaptable to getting people in and out i can get you in a wheelchair if you're in one it's got room to walk around it's got a little more storage but the downfall is that if you hit a rock it's loud and it's going to hurt it's a drift boat what should i purchase to start fly fishing all right you need a rod and real i would suggest for the dc metro area a nine foot five weight rod with weight forward floating line five or six weight an array of flies to include clouser minnows generic beadhead nymphs beadhead woolly buggers and a foam popping bug for bass you should have hemostats to smash barbs put on split shot and remove hooks so this you would probably need some split shot and you need something to cut the line with, you can go and get fancy fly line nippers, or you can go to the drugstore and get a fingernail clipper. I would suggest getting toenail clippers because they can clip thicker monofilament. Do I need a vest? No, you do not need a vest. Vests have become obsolete. The issue with vests is they have so many pockets and you will inevitably put all sorts of crap in them and they will fill up and get heavy. Thus, the chest pack and the modified sort of chest backpack have come around on the market the last couple of years, and that can help you avoid carrying all that crap with you. They're easier to breathe, they're lighter, and they're a little more functional. The uh, vest has sort of gone the way of the dodo. Where can I eat around here before or after fishing? Again, a podcast in itself. If we are in Reston, I'm going to tell you to go to Cafe Asano at South Lake Shopping Center or the Vienna Inn in Vienna. If you're fishing Homes Run, I'm going to send you to Bon Chon Chicken, which is the Korean fried chicken across the street from here. If you're down at Gravely Point, National Airport, Four Mile Run, or Mount Vernon, or Bellhaven, I'll tell you to go to Cheese Teak. Um, yeah, I was just up in New York. I'd say go to the Altmar Hotel if you're in Altmar or Plaskai, but and that burger just didn't do it for me last week. Is I usually get a burger, you know, with bacon and cheese and lettuce, tomato, onions, pickles, the works. And this was just bacon, cheese, and a slab of meat. I was a little too tired to complain. So um, I ate it. In Colorado, we always hit up Dorothy's. If we're coming back from the Dreamstream, 11 Mile, um, 69 Ranch, Night Imler, Dorothy's homemade tamales. If I'm in Breckenridge, going to hit up Fatty's for lunch on Mondays, which is chicken fried steak squash mashed potatoes and bread if i'm coming through kremlin you got to hit up the burger barn if i'm coming through frisco i'm going to stop at the irish pub and get some kind of stew Uh, the list can go on and on so i'm just gonna have to do a podcast on fly fishing and food locations 
I already answered when did I start fly fishing, 10 years old. Uh, where do the snakeheads come from? Snakeheads in the Potomac were believed to have been dumped in at Dogue Creek, which is just south of Mount Vernon on the Virginia shoreline. It was believed they were dumped in for a religious ceremony and four to six fish were originally dumped in or that they were dumped in as a food source so people would not have to trek them in from New York City's fish markets and save money. They originated in Southeast Asia where they are known for their, um, I guess, delicacy of their flesh. Where'd you go to school? Uh, South Lakes High School, class of 95, rest in Virginia. Mary Washington College, now the University of, Mar uh, University of Mary Washington in Fredericksburg, Virginia, graduated there in May of 99. Where did you grow up? I was born and raised in Reston, Virginia and lived there till my wife and I moved to Ballston, not Boston, spelled B-A-L-L-S-T-O-N, which is a neighborhood in Arlington, Virginia in August of 2001. Where did you meet your wife? I met her on Match.com. I was looking for a date. I had no idea I was going to be meeting this woman and marrying her. Uh, we met in March of 01. She moved in in April of 01. And then we got her own place in August of 01. And now we have a dog and a very small condo and a five-month-old baby girl. What is your daughter's name? Her name is Kirsi. If you want to pronounce it correctly, it's Kirsi. You roll the R, Kirsi. It's a Finnish name. We got the name from a friend of ours who's from Finland, and we figure it was unique. She'd already have the last name of Snow White, so things would already be against her in the name category. Um, her middle name, my wife picked, is Natalia. My wife is uh, from Russia, so... She wanted to keep something Russian in her name, and she's the first on my wife's side of the family, born here in the United States. My wife's family came here in the 70s from Kiev. In case you wanted to know where originally she was from, she grew up in Columbus, Ohio, came here for grad school, and that's when I met her on Match. Um, she had done it as just to see what would happen, too. Um, we met each other at Cafe Asia one night for dinner, and basically we've been together ever since. Where is your favorite place to fish? If I have time off here, I'm going to the Tidal Basin. And I'm going to do a podcast all about the Tidal Basin coming up this winter. About why it's my favorite place to fish. I wish the National Park Service would allow me to take you there if you're a client. They denied my commercial use authorization. And I'm very angry with that. And I will talk about that in my podcast on the Tidal Basin. Where's the bathroom? I get that all the time. Well, it was easy in the Tidal Basin area because they actually had restrooms. Um, I'm going to point you to the woods if you got to go number one or number two. Um, most places I fish are going to be within walking distance of a bathroom. So either you can drive quickly to a Starbucks. If you're going to go number one and we're wet wading, you can pee in the water. Or you could use restroom facilities on location. Um, places like Four Mile I mean. I'm an urban fly fishing guide or suburban. So we're always near, we're not out in the boondocks. We are going to be in parking lots in spaces where it's close to civilization and industrial places. There's always a Starbucks nearby, a 7-Eleven, a gas station. So if you really got to go, go in the woods. If not, hold it or go in the porta potties. And yes, I'll carry toilet paper with me in the car just in case. Um, people use them all up at say Gravely Point because it's a very popular place and a roll is usually gone by 9am there on a weekend where to buy fly rod around here if you're going for a budget go to Dick's you can get a scientific anglers 4, 5 or 6 weight rod for about 50 to 60 dollars it's a 4 piece you can go to L.L. Bean the Orvis company stores in Bethesda, Tyson's Corner or Clarendon and there is also the Urban Angler in Old Town Alexandria. I can have a custom rod built for you from Tom in Colorado. It's going to cost you a little bit more, but you will get the exact specifics that you want in a fly rod. Who's Dr. Jones? Dr. Jones is my mini schnauzer. 
He does not like to be outside, so he doesn't go fishing with us. He's scared of boats. He's scared of airplanes. He got scared of pigeons flying over one day. He'd rather be here looking out at the golf course, growling at golfers, trying to be a little tough guy. Um, but he's my schnauzer. He's my little guy. And if you listen to the two podcasts ago, he was on my lap the whole time because we had Tropical Storm Lee coming through and he was scared of the thunder. Who was your favorite client? The client that asks questions. I can't say I've had one client that was awesome. I've had a couple clients that I was just like, hey, man, we got to go fishing together sometime or that just just listened and picked up on everything and asked questions and wanted to be like a sponge and just absorb information and, and kept asking me questions about fishing and techniques and picking my brain about things. That, that's what I want in a client. Somebody who's eager to be out there and that doesn't get frustrated. Um, but every client's my favorite client, right? Not the right thing I'm supposed to say. All right. Why debarb your hook? Won't the fish fall off? We debarb hooks for three reasons. One, you can release the fish easier. Two, when the hook gets stuck in your skin, it's easier to remove. And three, when it gets stuck in your expensive fly fishing clothing, it's easier to remove without leaving holes in it. We had a client who asked me that and 10 minutes later got a hook all the way through his middle finger. Greg, if you're listening, that's a shout out to you. There's pictures of that on the website. So, um, and, you know, the past year I've taken hooks out of two through ears. I'm talking like in one side of the ear, out the other. Fingers, arms, necks, cheeks, ears, generic places on faces, fingertips, elbows, arms, um, sweaters, shoelaces, fleece, waders. Just wherever that hook's going to get stuck in, it's easier to take out if the barb is removed. It does less damage to the fish and just makes my job a lot easier. Will you go on Groupon again? I'm not sure. If I did, I'm going to cap the limit so I don't have to deal as a single person with scheduling 1,000 people. And if that's 10 to 12 emails each, that's 12,000 emails and voicemails. And it's just a lot of work for a one-person operation. Is that your real last name? Yes, my real last name is Snow White. Um, are you Native American? No. Where did that name come from? We believed it was Schneeweiss. As one story goes, when they came here in the 1890s at Ellis Island, my family's name was translated into English. It was before the Disney characters came along. And my wife does not have that as a last name. Why? Because she's not funny. And last but not least, I can't say this is a frequent question, but it was one I was asked, and I just can't let this one go. Where can I get horse meat to eat around here? Um, yeah, I, that one I, I couldn't answer. So if you are in the D.C. metro area and you know where to get horse meat, please send me an email, rob at robsnowwhite.com. Remember, there's only one W in Snow White. And that summarizes frequently asked questions volume one i'll compile more questions i get from people because i'm asked the same questions repeatedly and if there's new and novel ones then i will write them down and i will answer them for you in the future i have to send a shout out to jason for producing the podcast and i appreciate you downloading this the next podcast uh is going to be about something i've got uh sorry mentioned i'll do tidal basin fishing and food i want to do sunglasses i want to do one on salmon river new york a couple other things i had like an eight hour drive the other day so i was brainstorming i had nothing to write down with so um yeah thanks for downloading i'll see you on itunes if you can give me a couple stars leave me a rating let me know what you think if you have a podcast idea you would like for me to discuss please send me an email and that is it Thank you for joining us for the Fly Fishing Consultant Podcast. For more information or to contact Rob, visit www.robsnowwhite.com. I'm Will Cooper, host of HuntStand's Make Your Mark Podcast. If you haven't already, download the free Waypoint TV app to listen to our podcast and watch the original films from HuntStand Presents anywhere, anytime, and on any device. Oh!
That's awesome. Don't miss Thursdays with Saltwater Experience. Brought to you by Golden Boat Lifts. Every Thursday night from 7 to 10 p.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV. The destination for outdoor entertainment. Join Captain Justin Leake and Meredith McCord for the best fishing action along Panama City Beach. Tune in to Chasing the Sun every Sunday at 9.30 a.m. Eastern on Waypoint TV.